Hey MW, it's Melissa. And Stephanie Carcace, two sisters and the founders of Millennial Women. And your host of Millennial Women Talk. We're so grateful you're sharing your time with us today. By tuning into this episode, you're investing in becoming the best version of you. And we are thrilled to be on this journey together. In 1962, a fearless woman with just six euros launched a software company that employed only women and later went on to make 71 of her employees multi-millionaires by offering stake in her company. This iconic woman's name is Dame Stephanie Steve Shirley. Steve shares her life's inspiring story in her memoir, Let It Go, my extraordinary story from refugee to entrepreneur to philanthropist. She was one of the first women in the UK to start a software business with the idea of working from home in the 1960s. Steve teaches us about the pioneering trail led by her and the women of her generation, as well as how to master the art of letting go. This is one of our most powerful mentor episodes to date, and there were so many insightful moments, but here's some of our favorites. So it was a very important and traumatic part of social history. And as far as I was concerned, it has made me entirely what I am. I was had to deal with so much change, new family, new language, new nationality, new food, new everything. But I learned to deal with change and having dealt with that change, I found I quite liked it. It's part of the sort of culture, because of the femininity of, of the original workforce, it was a very collegiate culture. We helped each other, we worked in teams. I could help you in the morning, I would ask you for help in the afternoon. And all this was very acceptable and very normal and, and really gave us a sort of corporate um, efficiency and effectiveness. Okay, MW, the journey to getting closer to the best you starts right now. We are so honored to have you here First, what name would you like us to call you by? <laughs> Steve, Dame Stephanie? Well, as long as you curtsy over the phone, <laughs> I, I answer you anything. But I really like to be called Steve uh, because really it takes me back to the days when I was very creative in setting up a business and was learning to sort of market the services and telephone marketing and writing letters because that was before the days of email and um, Steve really encapsulates the battle that I had to change from Stephanie with this double feminine of Stephanie Shirley um, to Steve. And then my letters began to get a reply. So please call me Steve. I love it. I love it. You got it, Steve. <laughs> you got it, Steve. <laughs> so you know, we're going to take it back from the beginning. We read your book. I have to first give you a little bit of context. We found you on, on Instagram, actually. You did something with Virgin where they interviewed you. And I said, who is this woman? She is incredible. I did a little quick Google search, saw two of your TED Talks, which were incredibly inspiring. And then I said, oh, and she's got a book. Amazon, thank you very much. I am <laughs> placing that order. And we dove into your memoir, which really is incredible. 
So I'm going to take it from in the order of your memoir, and I want to take it back from the beginning at you, five years old, and your sister at the time, nine years old, and jumping right into the kinder transport and uh, heading over to Great Britain. Could you share a little bit about your mental, emotional, however you want to describe it, your journey during that time and how you felt? What can you remember from that time? In July 1939, it was not a good time in Central Europe to be Jewish. And my parents did a very brave thing. They organized for me to come to England on a kinder transport, one of several from Central Europe, which brought nearly 10,000 mainly Jewish children out of Nazi Europe. It was well organized by Christian and Jewish activists, uh, supported by the Quaker Society of Friends. As far as I was concerned, that was all just noise because I was unsettled. I remember just the childish things. I remember the lost doll uh, and finding her again. I remember the little boy that kept being sick and, uh, you know, we slept on um, I, was, I was fascinated, strips of corrugated cardboard on the floor, uh, on the benches, and believe it or not, on the overhead luggage racks. So I can remember those things. I can remember being frightened by the uniformed guards that came in from time to time and were really nasty to us. Um, I can remember bits of the cross-channel journey. We went from, from Holland to Harwich, and it was the first time I'd really seen and smelt the sea. Um, so that was uh, just a new experience. But in particular, I remember our foster parents who um, had taken us sight unseen and offered us a home, and we were there for many years. I say we because I was with my older sister, Renata. Um, she was nine years old. Um, I was five, and we were on a train of a 1,000 children aged 5 to 16. So it was a very important and traumatic part of social history. And as far as I was concerned, it has made me entirely what I am. Mm. I was had to deal with so much change, new family, new language, new nationality, new food, new everything, that I learned to deal with change. And having dealt with that change, I found I quite liked it. Mm. And uh, <laughs> that's useful in a the digital world. And um, well-meaning people were saying things to us, not healthy things to say to children. Aren't you lucky to be saved? Aren't you lucky to be saved? And indeed we were. But it forced me, it pushed me into a feeling that I had to make the life that was saved worth saving. And that is as true today as it was 80 years ago. Um, but I did start as a child to think I'm going to make my life a good one. Mm -hmm. Wow. And what do you do as a six-year-old? It, it sort of led me always to do the very best that I can. Now, if in business, when I bid for some work and didn't get it, I wasn't upset about it if I had done my very best because I can't do more than my best. I've given the time, I've given the energy, I've given the preparation. I can't do more than that. And that means that I don't have 
lots of regret, so I wish I'd done it differently. I wish that had happened. Because at any time in our lives, we, 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 we are what we are and have the skills or, or weaknesses that we have and have to really um, build on that and make it something that is meaningful, that is spiritually worthwhile and not just making money. Right. Absolutely. I want to highlight something so powerful because I do remember reading this in your book that you you put this huge responsibility on yourself to make a life worth saving. Wow. Super powerful. Um, what was the first action when you came to this resolution within yourself that you had to create a life worth saving for yourself? What was that first action for you in your life that you took? I think it was the action of a, of, a, of a child really trying to be good. I'm going to be a good child. And then later on, you move from being good to being worthwhile um, and um, making um, a significant difference, um, not just doing things right, but doing the right things. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So powerful. Absolutely. I want to dive into your entrepreneurship journey. Um, You were 29, I believe, when you started your company. And it's funny story. I was also 29 when I started Millennial Women. So I related to that. And you only had... Congratulations before I forget. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And you only had six euros when you started freelance programmers. Walk me through that decision of starting a company when, honestly, women entrepreneurship was pretty much non-existent at the time. Why did you want to start this company and walk me through that journey? Well, I think this is of interest to your, your millennium women because I was so tired of the sexism that I had found in the world. Uh, I'd been patronized as a Jew. I then found myself being patronized as a woman, um, certainly in the 50s and 60s when I was um, a, a young adult. Women were really second-class citizens. Um, I couldn't um, hire a car or uh, drive a bus. I couldn't do a lot of things without my husband, without a male signature. And I think it gave me a sort of cussedness. I wasn't going to prepare to put up with the sexism. My first job, men and women had different pay scales. There was one pay scale for men and another lower scale for women. And I began to really become quite um, assertive and aggressive. And I, I believe in equal pay. I will carry my own things, um, and became effectively a feminist. Indeed, though not in word, I never called myself a feminist because at that time feminism was very anti-male, which I assure you I am not. Um, and the sheer irritation of that. I, I battle with this. I, I, you, you go around the difficulties, you go through them, you go under them, you go over them. And eventually, I just went elsewhere. And um, I decided to set up my own company. And it was almost an overnight decision. I had the idea that software was a lot more important than people were then viewing it as. And everybody laughed at me because you can't sell software. That time, it was given away free with the hardware. And the sheer thought of of a woman trying to sell software. But I was driven by that sexist um, world. Um, It was going to be a company of women 
a company for women. So it was an early social business. I measured success in terms of the number of women that we were employing, women that were breadwinners, women that were disabled, women that were uh, looking after um, young, young families. I never set out to make money, um, though in the long run I did, but it was a crusade for women. I had to dissemble by calling myself Steve Shirley rather than Stephanie Shirley. I had to make sure that I didn't scare the male clients off. We had sort of house styles that was no trousers and, um, you know, you, you, you really learned to work in, in a very male-dominated environment. And eventually it suited me quite well. I enjoyed business. I look back on those early years, despite their difficulty, with pride, but also affection. I, I, I enjoyed those years. They, they were highly creative I was doing new things all the time. I was doing what was in me to do. That's amazing. I, I actually would love to ask you about, especially in the beginning and, and not having a lot of resources and really on, on paper, the odds were not really for you. Did you ever have a sense of doubt within your capabilities or felt like giving up at any time? Or were you just ambitious enough to power through? I wasn't ambitious for me, really. I was very ambitious for women. I felt that if the company failed, a woman's company, the first of its sort, that it would, I'd be letting down all the women at the time and after me. Mm. So I was conscious of, of, of breaking new ground. I was conscious that it was unexpected for women to do this. Um, but nobody had taught me what one was supposed to do in business or what one wasn't supposed to do in business. So I just went ahead and did it. So I did lots of new things because I hadn't had any training. And there's an advantage sometimes in, in not going the, the normal route, the route that everyone else is taking, but doing things in my way. And I ran a business, company in, in, in a different way. Um, I was described as matriarchal, and it was not considered a polite, polite term. It was considered mm. to be too... Um, supportive. It wasn't um, focused enough. It was a matriarch. It ran like a family for many, many years. Uh, I ran it until it was about a thousand strong. And still at that time, I would know which child had measles, um, who was having marital problems. Um, it was a very family friendly. And everything that, every survey of, of, of women's wishes in the, in the employment world comes up with the same two things, family friendly and flexibility. Mm. And we were flexible to the extreme. We had people who worked summers only. We had people who worked part-time at home or min-max contracts, all sorts of different ways of allowing people to develop their skills, their um, capabilities in their way, not my way in their way. Which is very, wow. I want you to know millennial of you, but that's how we run. <laughs> you were pioneering already ahead of yeah. your time. I mean, that's what's so interesting, just hearing you speak. And, I, and it's so important mm -hmm. to have these conversations because sometimes, and we are in the U.S. and we have a lot of these narratives, very prominent, like sexism. And hearing you speak, I can't help but think how far we have come 
yeah. when I hear you speak about that you needed your husband's signature to open up a bank account. The you know, um, women pilots mm-hmm. were not even allowed to fly a plane, right? In in your times. And I really kind of want to stick with with this and and hear more from you and your pioneering generation so that our listeners who are millennials can hear, you know, how far we have come. What are some of the things that you and your generation faced in those times? I think women have become masters of our own finances. That's the big thing. Mm. Um, The other thing that people don't often talk about, of course, is the empowerment of women is very much based on birth control, which came in, in, I forget when, but certainly in my early um, business career, and without being able to control um, your own own childbearing, um, life is extremely difficult in the business world. So one mustn't forget the, the medical changes that were happening. Today, in Britain at least, we're talking about um, how to manage people through the menopause, how to, uh, should we have um, health uh, adjustments for when people are, have their monthly period. Um, these are considered um, major issues, but nothing compared to the sort of major issues that we had when banks would not employ women who were married, um, civil servants couldn't hold their permanent positions when they married, um, all sorts of things that were really difficult to live with. Some of them were well-intentioned. For example, um, women were not allowed to work in down coal mines. Mm. Luckily, nobody works down coal mines anymore now, mm, yeah. um, but that was not considered suitable. Women were supposed not to work at night. I always did. Um, but the law has since changed. There were all sorts of things that were obviously quite well-intentioned, but they were looking at little women, you know, because of them. These, these are not full, full-blown people. And um, some of the things that have happened uh, are really quite late. Certain careers were not open to women until post-war. Um, during both wars, the opportunity to do male-oriented jobs came in for women, and some of the gains that were made during that time um, did have, have lasted and stayed. Today, I think women are still unsure of themselves. When I look at young women, that you always look very uh, beautiful, but also competent and, and, and self-confident, self-confident. And when you talk with Today's young women, they also have real worries. They also feel that their doors are closed for them, um, that they real, is my voice going to squeak? Um, Am I doing this right? And it behoves us really to take pleasure from how far we have come and make sure that we as individuals open doors for the next generation. Mm, Absolutely. Worldwide, I mean, there's still dreadful things going on with women. Yes. Absolutely. What um what are some of your thoughts and even advice that you could give young women of today as far as what would you like to see us continue to pioneering? What doors in your thoughts do you think need to be broken open? If we look internationally, the way in which I guess you guys work and certainly my life here is an intellectual life, it, it is a spiritual life, I hope. But worldwide, women are suffering from 
um, sexism, things that they can't do. They're suffering from female genital mutilation. They're suffering from hunger um, because they are putting their families first. Um, so we need to make sure that whatever advances women have made are generalized across the world, not just me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. It should be a group a group effort yeah. across women around the world to to join together to face these challenges and overcome them together. Yes. I think people in my generation talked about sisterhood women. Right. Uh, it's not a term that's used now, but that's how it was. I, I always help other women. There are some women that I've employed who felt that um, they'd managed all right, that they weren't going to help anybody else. It's up to you know the youngsters to, to do their thing. Um, but um, I believe women should help each other. Absolutely. Uh, we understand each other. We have joint um, aims, goals, Absolutely. styles. Um, and our style, is, our style of leadership is very, very different from the men. And it, you know, we, we need to actually share. This is what works. This what this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that you did for women within your company was give a quarter of your company away to your employees, which I found to be extraordinary because not just in the time that you did it, but even in today's day and age. I don't even think I hear this ever. Um, What prompted that decision? How did you do that? I mean, you made 71 of your employees multimillionaires. That's that's (laughs) incredible. That is incredible. I'm very proud of that. Yes, yes. But I think it's an it's a testament to who you are, your core, which is truly, you know, a, a person that puts women first. Walk me through that process. Um, Melissa, it's all something to do with my childhood again. Mm. When when you come into the world and you find the world an unfair, somebody like me really works always to make the world a fairer place. And the company's success depended not only on me but on the work and skills of a large number of people. And we went through some tough times together and I wouldn't have survived in business without my colleagues' help. Mm. And so when that was finished, I really felt that it was right and proper to make the bonus system that we already had into something much more permanent, something much more meaningful. Um, And the intention, in fact, was to give the whole company away, but that's proved not to be um, feasible for a variety of reasons. So um, I am proud of having got it away. And, And it's part of the sort of culture because of the femininity of, of the original workforce, it was a very collegiate culture. We helped each other. We worked in team. I could help you in the morning. I would ask you for help in the afternoon. And all this was very acceptable and very normal and, and really gave us a sort of corporate um, efficiency and effectiveness because we were financially viable. Um, the uh, changes that um, took place um, really with with co-ownership meant that people became much more focused. They they kept us team working. They became more focused. They began to give emphasis to the financial side of the business. And over the years, it became highly profitable, Um, not as good as the rest of the sector, but, you know, we we started up small. (laughs) Um, And um, it is really... 
Um, I thought at one time it was my legacy, but other things have happened since then. Yes, yes. (laughs) So much has happened since then. And and we love reading everything, but that definitely, Mm -hmm. you know, stood out to us because it, it did it. It really did because, you know, we are surrounded. um, So our parents are entrepreneurs um, and we've also been surrounded by so many business owners. And there is kind of like um, this way of doing business, I would say. And you were mentioning earlier in our conversation that there is this sort of path and you weren't really necessarily drawn to the path. You were in the path of crusading for women and just doing your own thing. And, um, you know, I, I don't I don't think I can mention anybody or think of anybody that would do what you did today, right? Mm-hmm. Because they are thinking about the me. They're thinking about the money. They're not thinking about the group effort, how you mentioned sisterhood. So it was so incredible. And also when you also see all the philanthropy work that you've done, it goes to show that you were still rich in life. And obviously in the philanthropy, you were also financially nice as well. So I can make something happen. Yeah. But it, it, it is something reciprocal. Um, people remember the, the, the projects that I've made happen, and mainly they are entrepreneurial projects, four charities that I've taken into sustainability. It's just like building up a company. Um, but, but also I get a great deal from it. It is reciprocal. I have a wonderful quality of life. I meet interesting people like yourselves and others. I still work with women. I give a lot of speeches to women um, I, because that's what I care about. And I focus only on the things that I know and care about. And that's information technology, which was my professional discipline. Women, which is very much part of my DNA. Um, and autism, which was my late son's condition. Mm-hmm. So somehow or other, I finished up with the, Actually, I finished up a very happy person because I have done many things that was in me to do. I still have time to do a couple more. Um, There we go. (laughs) I love that. Steve, I want to read something um, from your book, Let It Go. You say, the first is the conviction that even in the blackest of moments of despair, there is hope if one can find the courage to pursue it. Steve, you were a refugee. You faced sexism. So many challenges as an entrepreneur. You also had a severely autistic child. That courage, that hope, what did that look like for you? Did, are you religious? Did you depend on your faith? Was it spirituality? What got you really through those darkest moments in your life? Well, I only just got through. I found life pretty difficult. Uh, I was not very happy. I considered suicide at one time, in fact, twice. What gets you through is the love and affection of other people. Um, The fact that you do have responsibilities, that if I want to do the best, then I have to do things that I don't necessarily want to do. Um, I have to learn how to do things better. Um, I have to not be self-confident, but present and focus on the strengths that I have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I very much admire professional managers, for example. Um, And to a certain extent, I I ran the company until it was a thousand strong. So that was still, you know, already a large organization to manage. Um, 
and I wasn't very good at it. I was dutiful. I, I, I did it as best I could. Um, but I'm an entrepreneur. I like to do new things. And now I focus on those new things. I don't um, support projects that are not pioneering. Mm-hmm. I, um, no matter how worthy they are, if they're not pioneering, I'm not going to spend time on them. So to that extent, I'm becoming quite selfish. I'm doing what I want to do. Um, the fact that I get pleasure from philanthropy, and philanthropy has nothing to do with cha- stamps. It's all to do mm-hmm. with charity. And it gives me a wonderful lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. And um, as you've spoken about your son in, in the book, uh, your late son Giles, and you've spoken um, about your journey with him, that has pioneered your philanthropy work. What was that turning point for you to, to say, I, I need to do something about this to help other families uh, that have gone through similar challenges that my son has had, that me and my husband has had? Uh, what, what pioneered that? Well, my son was in hospital for 11 years um, until he began to lose some of his human rights. And so by that time, my business was relatively successful. And so we decided to take him out of hospital and look after him again ourselves, this time with paid help, which we didn't have originally. And it took six years to deinstitutionalize him and then having him live um, with dignity, a very modest, quiet life in the country. Um, and then you, the pressure sort of gradually came off us. And I realized what we were doing for Giles was almost disproportionate. Um, so much love, so much money, so much attention to one child. And I could share his um, facilities with another child, just one, I thought. Um, and so we began to look for somebody who would fit in with Giles, not that they were both noisy, not that they were both withdrawn, but that, was, that they were complementary. And a young man called James came in and lived, lived together with Giles. And then you start thinking, well, I could have another house. <laughs> and we bought another house. And three people went into that. Wow. And um, then we bought another house. And that charity now looks after 150 people, wow. 24-7, wow. Um, all profoundly um, autistic, like my child, needing real um, significant care. But it, it took a lot out of me, that, because although I didn't put as much money into that first charity, it cost me more in terms of energy and what we were going out. We were at the stage of discussing whether we could afford a better car and deciding we couldn't. Um, So we were no no longer in penury, but we were not wealthy. And so to pour money into our first charity really cost us a lot. And luckily, my husband agreed with what I was doing with the family funds. um, And um, it's all worked out okay. That's beautiful. You've been through so much, Steve, so much. Um, You called your book Let It Go. What does Let It Go mean to you? And why did you name your book Let It Go? Well, I don't know if you've seen that the pun on the, the word IT, for mm-hmm. information technology. So that, that there's that in the book. <laughs> um, but, but it's a Buddhist principle of making sure that the rancor of the past doesn't affect today and tomorrow, mm. that we start with trust and faith on, in, in each day, 
um, and don't let, oh, well, this happened to me before, it's going to happen again, you know, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, that, that. It, it's, a, it's a very positive thing to, to let it go. I let the company go. I have learned to let go of the managerial reins, and that was even more difficult than giving away the shares. Can I go back for a minute to the idea of share ownership? Um, I also found that if I was prepared to give shares, I could afford to employ people of a high caliber that a little startup company couldn't afford. Mm -hmm. So a couple of the early people were paid in shares. So mm -hmm. it, it, it's a concept that really let it go, let it go, relax, right. enjoy. Right. Enjoy, enjoy life. And that's, it's, it's, I'm so glad you mentioned it this way because that's what I took away from your book and from the title was to just let everything be, enjoy this ride of life, you know, and the ups and downs and everything that comes with it, because truly it really forms you and makes you who you are, which is what makes your story so inspiring. What traits do you feel like you can say have been able to not just get you through the hardships, but make you successful? Do you have certain traits that you can maybe think about? Or are you just naturally this amazing? <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think resilience is one. Yes. I am tough. Um, I have a kernel of steel that goes right back to my childhood. Yep. I also like people. Um, they don't necessarily like me. Um, I don't aim for likability. I aim for respect. Um, but I like people and I enjoy being with them. And um, that's why my the quality of my life has been wonderful in business. Um, I'm a little bit of an academic. I spend a lot of time at my desk just thinking about ideas and speeches that I'm going to make or introductions that I can make. And introductions... I should add, is one of the most important things that people can do. And it costs next to nothing to realize that you, Melissa, would be very interested to meet this person. Right. And, and setting that up. Right. Stephanie, could you go and talk to so-and-so? And, and everybody wins when you make pointed, good introductions. Mm. Absolutely. What a great tip there. What a great tip. Uh, speaking of tips, I actually saw in one of your many brilliant um, TED Talks that you said a tip for success is choosing your partner very wisely. <laughs> and, um, you know, we are all in the age of, you know, we, we have partners, we're thinking of marriage. What are, is some of your advice to young women in picking a partner wisely? Because you did mention your I'm husband. Not a <laughs> um, let, let me talk about my own marriage. Um, people were very surprised that we married um, because we're very different. Uh, we have complementary skills, and he's a pessimist. I'm an optimist. He, <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, works um, bottom up. I work top down. Um, all those things, and yet it has lasted. We're about to celebrate um, 60 years of marriage. Wow. And it's Congratulations. In order to, you know, do applaud because that's, a, an that's enormous amazing. achievement. Congratulations. Uh, and how has that been? Well, compromise he he even puts up with my cooking for example which is not good um but I have some wonderful recipes there's one recipe that um, works very well all I have to do is mention it and he insists we eat out 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. That is so great. Oh, my God. And I think, hu- I think humor is quite important in making relationships go. I can remember lots of company meetings where I used humor to sort of really diffuse the tension. There was something difficult going on. If you can get people laughing, then they have a chance to speak and be heard and, and, and give what is in them to give. Right. Yeah. And it's, I think it's a testament to even the title of your book. Everything is let it go, relax. Yes. It's not so serious. And I feel like, um, is it safe to say that your marriage, you've also you know, used that approach within your marriage, just relax and go with the flow? Yeah, I could kill him at times. <laughs> he never shuts a, a drawer, closes a cupboard, all chaos. All the things, all the things. You say this joke in one of your in one of your many um, public speaking engagements that say that, <laughs> that your husband is an angel. And it says, oh, you're so lucky mine is still alive. Is one of my favorite <laughs> jokes that you say. <laughs> oh, it's, it's great. It's so brilliant. It's so, great. it's so brilliant. Out of all the things that you have accomplished, uh, Steve, what is the one thing you're most proud of? I'm most proud of having taken the company into co-ownership. Um, that is my most pride. I think my legacy is opening doors for women, um, but I'm not particularly proud of that. Um, it's just something that I, I did, and it worked well. Oh, amazing. We're going to have to cut this amazing conversation short because <laughs> I feel like we can talk to you for so so long. Um, Steve, if you could give any advice to millennial women, to our listeners, what would it be? It's the same advice that I would give to to, to young men, um, really to make sure that you concentrate not on what you have or what you can buy, but on the sort of person that you want to be. And if you do that, um, life can be really very good. Beautiful, 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 Steve. You, we have to say thank you on behalf of ourselves and, and our generation for pioneering so much of the way for us. We are grateful for what you have done for us. We're grateful for your time today, and uh, we can only hope that our listeners um, can take something away from this conversation and pioneer their own path in their own way, I and, hope so too. and yeah. learn how good. to just let it go. So we are honored. You're an icon. We appreciate you. <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you want to learn more about Steve, please visit steveshirley.com. Subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes and Spotify to help us continue to bring powerful conversations just like this to you every single week. Want free and discounted resources? Sign up right now to our free newsletter at wearemillennialwomen.com because subscribers only get freebies and perks to help you become the best version of yourself. We encourage you to continue on with the conversation. Keep being the strong, amazing woman that you are and never forget to live inspired. Until next time, MW. Always love Melissa and Stephanie Carcace.